Howdy, everyone, and welcome to the Simplify Your Financial Life show and podcast. I'm Adam Lawrence, and I'm joined by a very special guest today, our very own Marie Villard. Welcome, Marie. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Today, I thought we could do a day in the life of you and also talk a little bit about AI and cybersecurity. So to start us off, could you talk a little bit about how you got into the wealth management industry in the first place and how you ended up in your current role today? Yeah, sure thing. So um, I'd, I never had any intentions of going into wealth management uh, when I was younger. I thought for sure I would be on Broadway or I'd be a professional musician by now. And uh, life took its you know turns and twists and here I am and I wouldn't change it for anything. I really love this industry. Um, but when I was in college, I realized I wasn't really cut out for the every day, all day practice schedule that a lot of um, these musicians followed and really thought hard about what I was interested in. I took a few exploratory courses, um, one in finance, one in sociology and one in psychology. And I really loved sociology but um, and psychology, but I also let, loved finance. I loved math and I loved the numbers. And, and I thought to myself, well, you know, I, I don't have to just be in an analytical role. Like I could probably use some of these other soft skills from sociology, psychology, and kind of um, bring them into the fold with the knowledge that I have. And so, you know, I kind of thought about that and I kept taking courses and finally realized like, I really want to be in financial services industry um, because it kind of combines both those soft and hard skills. Um, So I, out of college, went uh, to work for a mutual fund company and I got a job in kind of this rotating associates program and landed on kind of doing more of like the back end stuff where I was learning how to um, actually code in uh, financial trading platforms and run queries. And I was supporting, um, you know, this big piece of technology that um, banks in the UK and the US were using. And so I learned a lot about the industry from the back end um, and then went to uh, uh, the UK. And that was a fun um, and worked there for a little while. And that was really fun. But I realized that I really out of that trip, realized that I really like client facing and I didn't really like so much sitting behind the scenes. And so I thought, well, what, where could I kind of use the skills that I've gathered and, and also talk to people and help them learn. And so I got a job at at Schwab doing just that. And Schwab really gave me a lot of knowledge about, uh, the financial services industry, but also about the RIA industry. And Schwab was where I met Um, a handful of firms in Texas, including uh, Financial Synergies. And they were my client for a good two or two to three years before um, they asked me to come aboard in 2013. And and it was just me and my dog. And I was like, sure, why not? Let's go to Texas. So (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of how we got here. And then, you know, I got here and I married a Texan and I've been um, helping the firm grow and it's been really fun. So I'm happy to be here. That's awesome. That's actually, I actually didn't know that you initially started off working with, you know, trading platforms and really coding. I feel like that was back in the day when coding was still a relatively new thing. Is that right? 
Oh yeah. I was, I was working in SQL, which was one of like the basic languages in, in the coding world. You know, it's also very easy to learn. Um, coming from a background of like no coding, it was kind of, um, easy for me to like pick it up and understand it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of database work, which it, you know, is cool and just not for people who actually like to interface with, um, human beings on a day-to-day basis. I see. Well, that's awesome that you're able to take that knowledge, you know, and especially you were living in another part of the country. You grew up in New England and then coming down to Texas. So I'm sure you, you know, don't miss the winters, but you also don't like the summers here. So it's kind of like you have to toe that line. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I would say like I would trade a hot summer over those awful winters for sure. So I've, I've always wondered the same thing because I feel like you can actually go outside in the summer here at least a little bit but I feel like whenever you have a huge blizzard up in Boston or up in New York City you can't even leave your house they have to sometimes shut down you know the entire city for a day so that I totally get that um but with that being said I mean when you talk about your current role here today what does your typical day typically look like yeah that's that's kind of a hard question to to answer because I don't know what it's going to look like every day because every day is different. And it's been like that since I started, which is and fun. I'm a person who I likes, I like, I like a good challenge. I like surprises. Um, I, I feel like there's always a problem to be solved and um, there's always a solution to be made. And so I kind of approach each day that way. Um, you know, I think, where I started, even though I've kind of had this director of operations role and title um, since day one of being here, it looks very different from 10 years ago than it does now. You know, now I have a whole team of people behind me and um, they really help with the day-to-day interaction with the clients and all of that. And now I can kind of uh, focus more on the solutioning side of it. So when we're met with a problem, you know, why did, why, number one, why was it a problem or what, what was the issue um, that we need to solve and how can we prevent it from happening again? And if it's something that we can do on our end to, to do that, we need to do it quickly and we need to do it thoroughly. So I like to spend most of my time kind of thinking through those things and then designing processes, procedures, um, workflows to kind of fill those gaps. Um, you know, I also wear the CCO hat. So from time to time, I'll, I'll put on my compliance hat and I'll have to solve a compliance problem or do a filing or make sure that our filings are up to date. Um, and then I also wear um, the chief technology officer hat. So when we have technology that we need to evaluate or we need to change, um, I'm kind of on the front lines of helping with that. Um, but I did hire an IT company this year, so I don't have to do as much of the hardware and software troubleshooting. So, uh, you know, things are changing, but I think, you know, we're just trying to make sure that we are um, as as fluid as we can be for our clients, because if we experience fluidity on the back end, then they're going to have such a great client experience. So, and that's really kind of what drives me every day. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. I mean, you, you definitely wear a lot of hats. Those and those are three very big and important hats. So, I mean, I'm just lucky that I was able to get this time to interview you because I feel like you're always so busy and uh, always doing so many different things. Um, so so that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, in terms of the fact, 
you know, you do wear the CTO hat. And so technology is a big part of what you do. Something that's been top of mind for not just people in the tech space, but for really the broader public and really the world in general, the last year is AI. And so I kind of wanted to turn our attention to that and sort of ask you, you know, what potential do you think it has to transform the wealth management industry as we know it today? Yeah, so it's interesting because, you know, AI is not a new concept. You know, I think we hear a lot about it in the media because um, generative AI has become such a hot topic, especially with the introduction of ChatGPT um, and how people are using it in day-to-day and then also in their in businesses. Um, and I think generative AI is important uh, for us to, to understand and, and know how to use um, and I think there are some things that it eventually will will aid us in in doing. But I, I kind of want to go back to the idea that AI is not not anything new. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the original intent of artificial intelligence um, was to make sure that it was to build technology that could generate knowledge and problem solve, similar to the logic and the steps that we follow when we're actually trying to do that as humans. And so, you know. I think that the intentions of this were were to supplement and aid the general human condition of problem solving um, and creating, which is really cool. Um, and you know, it's a, with everything that's good. There's always something that you know. There's always like a bad side to it, right? And I think that we've seen um, some of those things lately in the media, um, especially around you know what was going on in Hollywood with the strike, and then also with um, the potential for this to be used by bad actors in terms of phishing or voice phishing, which is called vishing. Um, you know, it, it's, um, it's something that we're going to have to wrap, um, wrap our heads around and really, um, as an industry, uh, try to come to some sort of, I don't, I don't know if it's regulation or if it's, um, you know, best practices, but, really make sure that we're using it in the right ways. You know, I think it's funny. I think about um, when the the term robo-advisor was introduced and uh, about 10 years ago, I would say, and it was basically like, this is going to take over um, every financial advisor. It's going to totally torpedo them. This is the biggest threat to this industry. And there was a lot of fear around that. And what have we seen? We've seen that a robo-advisor cannot replace an advisor because it is not smart enough to understand the human condition and all of the things that go along with really well thought out financial planning um, and really well thought out financial advice. And so what we see is this technology that can automate and can generate um, portfolios and recommendations on behalf of the client's risk tolerance, um, which is such a basic component of a good financial plan and a good portfolio. It can do that well, but it can't do all the other things that that we're here to do, you know, that we're here to accomplish for our clients. And so I think that being said, that could be a piece of the pie for an overall financial advisory firm to use and lean on the technology to help them, you know. Um, but is it going to replace us? No. And I and so the way that I see the evolution of this in our industry is really creating these use cases and these opportunities for us to get better at what we're currently doing. So like ChatGPT, 
you know, we can go in and we can ask it to go through um, the IRS tax code and help us pull out pieces or which section of the code is, is this law in, or, um, you know, or what does this regulation actually mean? Can you boil it down? I can see things like that helping us um, or getting really clear on certain things that are really abstract and trying to get down to like a nitty gritty um, type of solution. Um, I could see it helping us write better notes to our clients. I could see it help us, um, you know, take notes in a Zoom meeting, you know, for us so that we're not having to type away while we're trying to listen to a client and be actively listening. So um, there are some really good things that can come out of it. Um, you know, that being said, there are some really scary things that can happen. And, and I think that those hopefully will become easier to identify with, with the use of AI and with the use of technology with AI built in, it's, it'll be smart enough to notice the people who are using it and who aren't. Um, that's my goal for that. Hopefully there's someone out there who's building that right now. I love that. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Kind of going back to, to what you said before that, you know, this concept of AI is not a new thing. It's, I think a lot of people, especially broader society thought, man, you know, 2023, that's when all this AI stuff really started. And it actually has been 30, 40, even 50 years in the works. I mean, and, you know, we always think about a lot of the technologies that are, you know, that we use in our day to day and that help not only people in the business world, but, you know, families and, you know, kids with all, all kinds of, you know, their homework and whatnot. They were started by DARPA, you know, they were started by, um, you know, essentially the Advanced Research Institute of the military. And that's where we get all of these um, different AI and technology products. But, you know, kind of like the, the, I guess, soft AI, the AI that we don't really think about. I mean, it's been in our smartphones literally since 2008 um, or even before uh, whenever the iPhone first came out. Um, you know, if you if you search on your photos app, I, I know for sure the iPhone has this and I believe Samsung does as well. You can search by you can say dog, you know, and then it'll bring up pictures of all the dogs in your camera roll. That is an AI um, type of program that is doing that. And so I, I think it's already embedded in our lives and it's just going to become that much more embedded. And that's what people are thinking about when they when they see ChatGPT or when they see Microsoft Copilot being implemented um, into Microsoft Office and all those types of things. Um, but I totally agree with you about, you know, the financial planning side of things that a lot of people are worried. I think um, both advisors and clients alike that it's going to potentially replace us um, or or take our place in a way. And I, I think that a lot of the concern um, it's 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 not that it's not a good con good concern, um, but it's I, I feel like a lot of it is maybe maybe overhyped in the media a lot. Um, yeah. So you know, one of the things I think about is it's very complex, and there are a lot of moving parts in a total wealth management approach for, let's say, a specific client. So you have the financial plan side of things, you have the investment management side of things, but then you have all these other bits and pieces that kind of surround uh, those two halves of the circle. So you've got estate planning, you've got tax planning, you've got insurance, all those types of things that, you know, can change as life changes, you know, and an AI program can't look at a a, let's say a base financial plan, um, you know, starting off the relationship with the client and say, well, you know, you want to have a baby in let's say five years, how does that change the fact, you know, that you don't have any insurance right now? How does that change your tax situation? How does that change um, your estate planning situation? I, I, I feel like, like you said, the AI can do basic math 
Um, but it, it really can't um, evaluate that from from a, a more uh, kind of complex perspective of all these different moving parts. But honestly, at the end of the day, with all that being said, our industry will always be a relationship based industry at the end of the day. And unless and until an AI can provide that same rapport, that same trust and level of, you know, trust and confidence um, that, you know, we, I feel that I, and I hope that we offer to clients, um, I, I don't really see it taking our place anytime soon. Um, we'll, we'll see what exactly Elon Musk Tesla bot has to offer. You know, he wants to have this like a humanoid robot essentially that can stand up and walk around just like you or I could um, and, and, and have that do things. But I don't think it's going to be coming towards our industry anytime soon. Well, it's funny. So you mentioned, um, you know, AI being embedded in your phones. Yeah. You think about, okay, Siri, you know, ask Google, Alexa, like that's all AI as well. And that's using predictive technology um, to, to anticipate your questions and answer your questions. Um, you know, when was that introduced, you know, over 15 years ago, has that become so mainstream that everyone is absolutely dependent on it? You know, I, I saw an article on Friday that was basically like, you know, singularity in AI, which singularity is like the hypothetical future point in time when like a technology takes over. Um, you know, they're saying it's going to happen in 2031. And I'm like, how can you just decide that? Like, I think about <laughs> happened if, if the robo advisor didn't take over the financial advisor um, in 10 years, then how is that going to happen, you know, in less time than that? And so I, I see these these headlines and it's pretty funny to me. And um, it's funny to me that the Elon Musk robot, like who's going to be interested in that? Maybe him. Sure. But is the is it going to be a mainstream thing where everyone has like this humanoid robot in their homes? No, I mean, I think even robot vacuums are still not mainstream, right? And the access and the cost of the technology is not, um, it's not basic. And so um, it's going to go a little bit slower. And and all of this too depends on, you know, the economy and the markets and all of that. So it'll be fun to watch and and curious to see. But I do think the, the more serious side of things is that um, industries are going to have to find ways to regulate this if the government's not going to regulate it. And, you know, there are pros and cons to the government regulating information. You know, we saw that with the introduction of the World Wide Web like back in the day. Um, and, and so I don't think that that is the way to go. But I do think that it is important for industries to understand how they're going to use it and, and how they're going to identify use cases for it. And, and ways that they can build restrictions and um, other types of regulation around it. Um, and I think, you know, Hollywood was one of the first, you know, kind of industries to really take a stab at it um, at, at the first steps of that anyway. Yeah, no, I, I I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I'm not sure if you're a fan of Arnold Schwarzenegger and all the Terminator movies, but going back to your point about the singularity, um, yeah. you know, people are worried about Skynet. And I just, you know, I don't see that being a, a reality anytime soon. There have been actually a lot of meetings, um, you know, on, on Capitol Hill, especially with business leaders and stuff like that. You know, Elon Musk and uh, th- those those kinds of guys, the world, the leader of Google, Sundar Pichai, Satya Nadella, leader of Microsoft, all getting together in a closed door meeting on Capitol Hill and talking about, you know, how can we um, bring the regulation of AI to the forefront um, so that it does what we want it to do. So I, I think your point is well taken, but I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. 
Um, and so one thing I do want to say, though, it's it's kind of interesting because a, a lot of times people think, um, you know, of, of course, about the downsides. But I also think AI can be kind of fun, too. Um, and so one of the things I think about, I'm a huge fan of impressions. Uh, and so I was watching a video the other day and it was Bill Hader on Conan O'Brien. And uh, of course, for those that aren't familiar with Bill Hader, um, excellent former SNL cast member, great impressionist and a, and a great actor at that. And he was doing an impression of Al Pacino. And it was a specific scenario where Al Pacino was at the Emmys. And uh, this this actually happened. And he was like looking around and asking about the lights. And of course, we know how Al Pacino is. Um, but what this specific video had done is uh, they transposed the face of Al Pacino onto Bill Hader as they were um, as he was doing the impression on the show. And um, it was honestly pretty uncanny and a, and a little bit uncomfortable see seeing that sort of combined you know, hater Pacino person that doesn't exist. Um, and it was a deep fake. Uh, and it and it actually said that on the video. And so, you know, that's a kind of a buzzword that's been thrown around a lot lately. Um, people have been worried about deep fakes. There were actually pictures, fake pictures of world leaders that came out. Uh, they were deep fakes um, of them, you know, doing things or saying things that hadn't, you know, actually happened. And like so Pope in Balenciaga. You know, the Pope in Balenciaga and, and you know, wearing a, a, a very nice chain, apparently. So, uh, you know, that's that's a, an interesting thing, but also a concern for some people that that could be used for bad actors um, to, to make people look like they're doing or saying things that they aren't. And so I do want to ask you about, you know, kind of the, the risks of cybersecurity and AI and what risks should we be aware of? I know you mentioned vishing um, and, and some of the other risks that you talked about earlier. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the. It's, it's funny because you and I right now are going to put our likeness out on the internet in video form and in audio form by recording this podcast. And um, anyone in the public domain will be able to access it. ChatGPT will be able to scrub it in their next update if they so choose. And so, um, you know, there is nothing that you put out on the internet anymore unless you have controls in place, lockdown you know, that is safe from other people using it. And that's just the world that we live in. So what does that mean for the average person? You know, ways to protect yourself on the internet, there are a lot of ways, but I think about mostly the things that people are doing on social media first and foremost. And um, there are a lot of people who are not aware that their profiles in, on even Venmo, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok are public and anyone who is anyone can access them. They can see what you're spending your money on, who you're spending it with in Venmo. They can, or, and or PayPal, if you don't have the settings correct, um, they can, you can, you know, see what your interests are on Facebook, um, who you're following on Instagram. And so there are things that users and people can do to kind of, you know, tamper that down. The worst that I, I always cringe when I see, um, people share, you know, those long lists of things on Facebook where it's like, where did you meet your spouse? Like, what is your favorite? Color? And they're all questions that, you know, are a two-factor authentication questions or multi-factor authentication questions. And, you know, if you're, if your profile is public, people can go and get that information and try to hack you because, you maybe have two-factor or multi-factor set up, but you know what? 
they have a really good sample size of questions that you may have asked and been and answered in in your two-factor authentication. So if we can, as a as a collective, help train uh, people to do better with those types of things, then I think we can, you know, better position ourselves to um, to not be victimized by these people. You know, another th- the thing with the vishing and like the deep fake um, imagery um, in terms of video and and voice. Um, you know, there are ways to kind of help combat that. So, you know, if you have a family member, you know, when they get phone calls on their hard phone lines, you know, older family members, and they're being asked questions, remind them that they don't owe it to anyone to answer those questions. And Mm -hmm. if they weren't expecting a call, don't take it. In fact, if you answer it and you weren't expecting it, then politely hang up. And you know, it's, it's okay to do that. Um, you know, the, the last thing I would hate for anyone to do is to, to give, you know, anything about their voice away. Your voice is a, is like a fingerprint, you know? Um, and I think about, you know, those companies that, that call you in there and you're like, hello, hello. And then, you know, you're like, I don't know, Bob, I don't know who this is. Nobody's answering. Those are, they're recording you. They're trying to get your likeness and your video and your voice. And so if you get something like that and you, there's no one on the line, or it, it sounds like somebody who is not native to your area, then I would just hang up. And then if you want to call it back after you've put the phone number in Google and you see that it was actually your vet calling or, um, you know, a doctor that you are anticipating, um, that's fine too. I think too, it's if you get someone like Adam, if you called me and you were like, Hey Marie, I'm in, I'm in a bind and I need to go, I need you to go buy me this, or I need you to give me your credit card number or your bank account information. I would say, okay, Adam, sure thing. And hang up. And then I would call you back directly and make sure that it wasn't you uh, calling or that it was you. Um, And, you know, I think a lot of us have uh, have um, smartphones now who that will tell us the number and that will try a best estimate of like where the phone number is coming from or who it's coming from. And so that's kind of a nice thing. So, you know, if you don't have something like that, you can ask your phone company to turn it on, turn on, you know, predictive caller ID, which uses AI to, you know, take information, try to predict who's calling. Um, but, you know, there are some basic things. I used to say, the you know, trust yet verify. And now there's no trust. You just verify. And so anytime anything comes at you, you have to be on guard and you have to try to verify the information as best as you can. And oftentimes that is against human nature, human nature. We all want to help each other. We all want to, you know, provide and, and make sure that we're connected and all of those things. But I think we have to be super diligent in these er in this era. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and also, you know, it, it's interesting that you talk about, you know, using someone's voice. Um, so there was a really interesting investigative report that was done in the Wall Street Journal a few months ago. And um, this reporter, uh, what she did is is she recorded herself. I think it, it only took like maybe five, 10 minutes to do so. And then she used a free online AI audio website um, to be able to make her voice say whatever she wanted it to say. Um, And 
you know, it, going back to your point about your voice is your fingerprint. She she wanted to see how far she could get with this. Um, just, you know, in, in, in this article. And so she actually called up her bank. And for this particular bank where she has her checking and savings account at, um, you you get through the initial prompts uh, through your voice. It they It's, it's not just um, you answering specific questions, but also just about the actual sound of your voice itself. And so she used this program and she as you know, she called uh, the the bank, she had it on speakerphone and she was typing into this program everything that um, the 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 prompt was asking her and she got through it. Um, and so, uh, you know, that all, all it takes is a few seconds, less than 10 seconds. So the thing that I've been doing is now if I get calls from numbers that I don't know, I don't answer it. People can always leave a voicemail. And honestly, oftentimes if they don't leave a voicemail, it's probably not legitimate in either a professional or even in a in a, a personal situation, like with a friend or a family member, if it's that urgent, they're going to leave you a voicemail and or or send you a text, and you can always get back to them. Um, so that's the thing I think about. But also in this article, what was interesting is um, even though she got through to her bank, she then um, used it on her family members. So I think her her sister was calling her up and telling her that her her goldfish had passed away, which is sad for anybody, but. She she was answering the call with this AI thing and was having it having it say everything. Also, her dad called uh called her to just check up on her, see how her she see how she was doing. Um, and they said, Hey, um, it sounded like you, but it didn't take any breaths, and the cadence was really weird. And I could just tell that it wasn't you, that it was probably a program. So there, there are things that you can watch for, but it's 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 getting harder, and that's why I say just you know, don't let it happen. Just, you know, don't, don't answer the phone. Um, when it comes to uh, seeing fake images online, they always say the hands, they say that deep fakes are really bad at doing hands. And so if the hand is like stretched or if the fingers look kind of like ET, the extraterrestrial, then it's probably a fake photo and, you know, you shouldn't believe whatever the message is. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, I totally agree with you on that. Um, now the, the thing is, is that, uh, AI, you know, it sounds like AI in this case is being used to make existing scam techniques more sophisticated. Um, but could it also be used to create new scam techniques that we've never seen before? Yeah, but I think simultaneously what's happening is that there are, um, you know, thing, things that are innate to an email like uh, spam filtering that are building AI into their filtration so that they can actually see and understand patterns in generated in generated content, um, and try to capture those types of messages or use keywords that they see over and over again in these scams. And so, um, you know, I think while things are getting more heated in terms of um, you know people's availability to kind of scam others, these technologies are building traps for that. And so what we're going to just see is just this kind of constant battle. And it it does require a level of human uh, interaction, in my opinion. You can, we can't just rely on the technology to, to capture these. So for things like, you know, making these, um, you know, like you were saying, uh, she wasn't taking breaths. She didn't sound like a normal person. It just sounded like it was just kind of repeat, you know, answered and asked. Um, you know, and I read that article as well. And I, and I, I've listened to some of the examples of, of people regenerating their voices through AI. I think that, you know, we, 
will over time we will get used to hearing what that sounds like as people are reporting on it as as things happen. Um, you already know, like when you get those robo calls, like that you're hearing a recorded voice, like you'll be able to detect some anomalies, but it will get more sophisticated. It has gotten more sophisticated. You know, it used to be that you could identify like the, 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 the scammers that were from different parts of the world because of the way of their, their usage of English in writing. And now they're using AI to generate content that sounds more like it's you and I having a conversation. Um, but I think what we do that AI doesn't do is that we know our clients and we know their behaviors and we get to learn the ins and outs of who they are and the things that they might ask from us. And so if we see something that's off color or out of that characteristic, then we can capture it. We also have the cybersecurity tools built into our email and um, and our other programs to make sure that in the interim, if something crazy happens, it's captured or quarantined, um, or it alerts us that it is something that could potentially be an you know a bad actor. And that's I think what we're going to just have to do is is we just have to prepare that it's going to happen. And how do we prepare for that? Well, we have you know, cybersecurity insurance, um, which is a new kind of program in the last couple of years that insurance companies are offering other companies to purchase. And, and what does it cover? It covers things like, like the bad actors. Like if something were to slip through our internal protocol and our technology that we have in place, and we were to do something that with the client and it wasn't actually the client, it would cover them um, and make them whole. But I think the first place to start is to train your people and to train your clients to what as to what to expect. And then, you know, you build in the technology and make sure it's understood that this is going to happen. But we have to be very diligent as well as use the technology and the insurance. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, you know, something like a, a tool that's out there now, ChatGPT, that we can use. Um, for, for some of those use cases that you that you talk about, I mean, how how should you know we as advisors and also our clients be thinking about how they could use ChatGPT in their everyday lives? And you know, what what should they ask it for advice about? I mean, should they just ask it anything, or should they use it for specific reasons? Yeah, so I mean, it's so funny because you know it has some information. I would say it doesn't have all information yet. I mean, what what program could have all information. And I think every update we see it has scrubbed more and more of the internet. But for an example, I asked ChatGPT before our call, who is Marie Villard? And it couldn't give me an answer because it doesn't know yet. And, you know, so it hasn't, it maybe hasn't crawled our website yet, but, or LinkedIn. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I thought that that was funny. Um, but, you know, I think asking it things that you need to either help you be better, like you're writing a letter to your parents um, and it's a heartwarming thought felt letter, or you want it to write, you know, help you with a lyric because you're writing a song and you just can't thesaurus enough words to get one that works for you. Um, or you're, you know, you are, uh, trying to read through a lot of material to get to a very specific, uh, answer and you can't, do it or you don't have the time and it can help you do those types of things. Um, you know, I think those are really good use cases for it. One of the things I wouldn't do is like put your own 
information in there because then it's your own information Um, and and it's out there in the public domain now. So um, what what I mean by that, like, don't tell it your birthday. Don't tell it any information about you. Like I asked it who Marie Villard was and I wasn't going to tell it who Marie Villard was. Right. Um, And I'm you know, if I'm working on a policy here, I'm not going to say, hey, write this policy very simply for me, because if I do that, then it's going to have our internal policies out there. And maybe that's confidential information. So I wouldn't ask it confidential information or anything that you deem personally identifiable information, also called PII. And you might see that term. Um, But personally identifiable information is basically anything about you or someone you know that that would identify you. So you know, your name, your address, uh, your locale, you know, what time zone you're in. I don't know anything detailed about you that you just really don't want the general public to know or these bad actors. Um, I would use it for fun things. You know, you can have fun with it. Like write me a love poem to this girl I'm dating or, you know, write me, um, you know, write me a really good response to this, um, this, email that I received and it, I don't know how to respond to it, or, um, I want to do something special for someone and, and this can help me get there. Um, that's the type of stuff I would use it for. And for work, like I said, you know, as long as you're not putting your company policies in it or any personally identifiable information or NPI, which is non-public information, um, then I think you're good. Yeah, no, I I think that makes sense, you know, because there are a lot of potential, um, situations where you could use it and you just have to think about what are what are the implications. Um, so, you know, an, an example you talk about, don't put any PII in there. Um, I was talking to a colleague at a CPA conference a few weeks ago, and he runs a technology consulting company. And um, one of the companies that he consults for is an engineering design firm based here out of Houston. And um, w- one of the, the engineering employees had huge amounts of engineering schematic documents, like more than 50 or 60 pages. And he wanted to distill them down into a more concise format and also to generate a summary. And so he copy and pasted it into ChatGPT. And then, you know, Monday rolls around and his boss uh, finds out about it and is absolutely furious. And so what what ends up coming out about it is that um, this document had extremely sensitive confidential information, private information about intellectual property that the company was working on and also private patent information for potential patents that the company hadn't even filed yet. And so now all that's out, all that is out blasted in the public domain. Um, and, and one particular, you know, scenario comes to mind with, um, the recent class action lawsuit by the authors guild. So a bunch of authors, um, some, some really famous ones like George R. R. Martin, who wrote game of Thrones, they got together and filed a class action lawsuit against open AI, who is, the creator of ChatGPT, and they said, "Hey, um, you have committed copyright infringement on an industrial scale because you have essentially ingested all of our books to help train your program, and we didn't agree to that. You didn't pay us royalties, you didn't pay us any sort of fee, you didn't ask us nothing." Um, and so this this is a really difficult situation to think about because you know, on the one hand, we want programs like ChatGPT around because it can benefit our lives and potentially hugely valuable ways. Like um, I, I actually have one of my friends who wrote his now girlfriend a poem using ChatGPT and uh, he claims that's why they're together now. So, um, and he got really specific with it about who they are 
and who he he is and who she is, their different interests, and then had the program write a poem, and apparently it turned out really well. So good for him. Um, right. But but it can it can also be you know scary for people that their livelihood is based off of the creative content that they generate, aka authors, aka musicians. Um, so with this with this uh, authors guild class action lawsuit. Um, you know, people were like, well, you know, it's just scrubbing the Wikipedia page or it's just scrubbing, um, you know, the Cliff Notes website on there. Um, and so that wouldn't be copyright infringement because that's just, you know, public information in, in the public domain that's out there. But then certain authors started thinking to themselves, OK, is this really true? So what they did is they they had themselves and their lawyers prompt chat GPT so, to see if they could get specific information. So one of the authors in the lawsuit, he, he wrote a book about. Um, this biologist basically going through the Amazon rainforest on a quest um, to to find specific animals in his study. And the way that the author describes the character, it's very specific. He talks about his blonde hair, talked about his appearance, talked about his demeanor and his personality. And this is information that you can only find in the actual novel, not actually in the Wikipedia article, not in the cliff notes. And they they tricked the program into giving verbatim text from ChatGPT. And so it's so it's sort of like a gotcha moment. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, because the other one that I think about is there was a huge lawsuit against Google in the early two, uh, 2010s because Google essentially did the same thing, but for books. So, so they essentially went around through literally thousands of libraries throughout the United States and I think around the world and uh, basically did deals with them and said, hey, all these books that you have both, you know, that are out that are being you know, checked out that are popular books and also the ones sitting in the basement gathering du dust, can we please scan those in and put them all on the internet? And the libraries agreed to it, but they never asked any of the authors. Yeah. And so, you know, that's that's a very difficult situation because they, they asked the repository of books, but not the people that created them. Um, and so what ended up happening is um, these, these authors ended up suing um, and Google was actually super happy about this. And you may you may ask why it's like why is Google happy that uh, that that they're happy about you know all these authors suing them and the reason is is because now all these authors for maybe independent books that they couldn't find or um, you know smaller time books that aren't on everyone's radar that they can't go out and and actually do a, a licensing deal with um, they were actually able to come to the forefront and they were able to pay them in a settlement and Spotify also did a similar thing when they decided to put all of the songs in the world online. So it, it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out. But, you know, kind of what you mentioned before, it's interesting because not just, you know, like I, I also saw an interesting interview with um, Will I Am. Um, he was at uh, the Davos Economic Forum a few months ago with a lot of other world leaders. And they're afraid that it's going to replace musicians, which of course is another, um, you know, big creative art out there in pop culture that we all that we all know and love. And he said, it's not going to replace, uh, replace us. It's actually going to, um, you know, amplify our work because and, and make us better as musicians, because, you know, the producer that I had to, you know, go in the studio 10 hours before rec recording and bounce all of my ideas off of. Now I can just use ChatGPT for that. And I find that, uh, you know, kind of in a similar regard, because, you know, certain ideas that I have about, you know, whether it's not. PII, but maybe just in general, something I'm working on, or, you know, right now I'm studying, of course, for the CFP exam and um, being able to ask it questions is really helpful because it gives you a lot more specific information than Google does. I feel like whenever you ask Google a question, you have to go in and you have to, uh, 
read an entire article and get maybe to the bottom of the article to find the one answer you were looking for. But now ChatGPT can just give it to you um, straight up. Um, and so I feel like that's a really cool use case for it. Yeah, I think I think there's some really good things, like I said, that can come out of it. it I definitely agree with Will. I am like it's not going to m- replace financial advisors or musicians. It's going to enhance what we do. Um, and you know, I think about how we can be better at personalizing things for our clients, our our outreach to them, even the things that we're creating. Like a, a lot of the blog articles that we write, we create those ourselves. Um, we are creating this podcast, you know, and, um, you know, we create marketing materials. So articles and newsletters, and um, we can use technology that has AI features built in to help us create better content, more concise content, more direct content for those people who are consuming it. And we can find out trends and we can find out um, what people like and what they don't like a little bit easier. Um with this technology. So yeah, it's going to make us better at what we do. It's definitely not going to replace us though. Yeah, I, I, I don't think so. You're exactly right. So, you know, with all that being said with, you know, all the potential use cases for AI and all the exciting things, but also some of the potential risks that we have to watch out for, would you say that inventions like AI in particular are overall beneficial for society or are they more harmful? I, you know, I think the thing is anything, anything that comes at us is eventually going to better us. We just have to figure out how we're going to use it and how we're going to put boundaries and limits on it. And that's with anything, you know, I think, um, you know, we've seen this over time in different industries. You know, I think about like the packaged food industry and like how we, how that has all had to change um, and be regulated in a different way with actual you know, calorie content, fat content, saturated fat, mono unsaturated fat, like all the different things that you see on a nutrition facts facts label, like the novelty of something new like that and us having to figure out how to regulate it is going to, it's going to be similar. There are going to be similar behaviors. Like we're going to take it to a certain extent and then we're going to have to scale back and then we're going to keep going and we're going to have to scale back. That's with anything that's new in any industry or any, anything that's introduced. Um, So is it a good thing? Yeah, I think the intention of artificial intelligence was good. You know, I think scientists came out with the intention to better humanity, to help us be more efficient, to help us get better at what we're doing and and how we're existing. And, you know, I think about 3D printing, how cool that is that people are printing homes for people who are homeless. Um, And there's just so many cool things that can come out of it. Um, that aren't necessarily going to replace what we're doing, but enhance what we're doing. Um, so yeah, I think that I really do think that there's a lot of good that come out that can come out of this. We just have to be ninjas and combat those bad actors and make sure that we are, um, you know, building our own kind of protections around the things that can be bad um, out of this technology. No, I, I totally agree. And it kind of reminds me of what my dad always used to say, because, you know, I'm I like to eat healthy, but I'm also a fan of junk food. So, you know, talking about the different saturated fats, it's like, hey, Adam, there's, you know, good cholesterol and fats like in avocados, but I'm also a huge fan of Doritos. So I hope, you know, when it comes down to the chat GPT that we stay more on the avocado side and stay away from the Dorito side, if you will. 
I'm with you on that. So, well, Marie, I really appreciate your time today. This has been a fascinating discussion and I always really appreciate your perspective. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me, Adam. You got it. Thanks, Marie. Thank you.